Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Safe House Chicago. The Safe House invites you to experience Chicago's number one spy-themed bar and restaurant, located in the heart of River North. Your next late-night mission should include a stop at the Safe House, where you can sip on giant shareable cocktails, dance the night away to our live DJ, and exit through our top-secret laser maze. Named Chicago's most Instagrammable restaurant, don't miss out on the fun every Friday and Saturday night. For more information, visit safehousechicago.com. And if you happen to know what Chicago's number two spy-themed bar and restaurant is, uh, let me know. Safe House is so good, I think no one has challenged them. Uh, So yeah, go there. Love it. I do. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. everyone and happy 2019 this is eric arnaud with the nerdalogs presents your stories podcast back with the second part of my farewell episode as the host of the show which appropriately and more importantly is the first episode to feature new hosts chris crotwell and shelby mongan doing their thing shelby and chris will be running the show from here on out though I imagine you'll still hear from me every now and again, especially in these introductions. Um, We'll be back soon with news of their first full live show, but for now, enjoy this set of storytellers they curated, including new friends Sasha Neary, Matt Fields, and Chris Robinson. Appropriately, I also share a story to end my tenure at the show, and of course there is music from myself, Dwight Hassler, Katie Johnston-Smith, and special returning guest Jim Snedeker. This was a hell of a night, and I'm glad to share it with you all. I'm so excited to see what 2019 brings for Chris Shelby and this show. Uh, stick around and find out with me. Whenever you're ready, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Welcome back, everybody, to the very first time I have ever done this. That's incredibly novel. Uh, me and Shelby will be swapping out a couple times. Uh, but before we start introducing the storytellers that we invited, uh, I want to say welcome back to the stage, the best goddamn band in podcasting! It's true, we're the house band for two podcasts now. We have the Chicago Storytelling Podcast cover band scene cornered. If anyone else tries to break in... Fuck them. You gotta be loaded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Wait, how much are we getting paid for this? Um, you know, it's not Damn. about the money, Katie. I got, I got paid once. That's true, you did get paid once. Um, okay, so you can't pass a torch without the flame. This one's for you, Tyler. One, two, three, four. Still hold me 
I'm going crazy, I'm losing sleep I'm in too far, I'm in way too deep over you and none of these guys had ever heard it before. Get some culture! I'm Asian. Watching shadows move across the wall Hasn't existed till now. Uh, Katie, do you want to come back up here? Yeah, I have to say something nice about Katie, uh, which is uh, uh, contractually obligated. No, a lot of people, uh, which is incredible, but more than one person I has said that um, something good in their life has happened because of this show or because of my being here. And uh, 
And so I have to pay that forward and say that many, many good things have come my way because of knowing Katie, including Mortified, uh, which is incredible. Katie is always out there looking out for her friends, and I really appreciate it. And she's also incredibly talented and, and passionate and great. So uh, thank you, Katie, for being in our band. Oh, thank you for having me. It really validates my, my musical favorite <laughs> <laughs> I also want to give a special shout out to Claire Friedman who um, thought maybe she could make it here tonight for a little reunion but it didn't work out but we love Claire and uh, I think her her leaving episode was still the saddest I've ever been at the show. So this is dedicated to uh, some Transformers that just ended a mission. This guy knows what I'm talking about. But also it's one of your favorite songs, right, Katie? It's a good one. It's one that um, actually my husband Logan and I bonded over. Uh, and I, uh, that's all I'm going to say. And I guess we should dedicate it to, uh, dedicate it to Chris and Shelby, too, because yeah. there is a light that never goes out, yeah. hopefully. So here's the Smiths. One, two, three, four. <laughs> anxious and worrying that they won't see Dwight Hassler make them laugh on, laugh on this stage again, uh, I would not have agreed to do it if the band wasn't coming back. Yay! And they are! <laughs> These guys are going to still be making great music on this stage for a long time, hopefully. Um, uh, part of me and Shelby being new at this and part of us moving it forward means that we wanted to bring three people on stage tonight who had never told a story at your stories before. Um, we, we want to make this experience bigger and broader and bring in new voices and uh, grow it if we possibly can. And uh, the first speaker that is coming on stage is a coworker 
and a friend and a badass librarian at Harold Washington yeah. Library downtown. And if you see incredible, innovative things happening in the Maker Lab or in the system in general, because it is a stodgy old system, <laughs> uh, a lot of it is going to be because of incredible people like Sasha Neary. Please come up on stage. So as Christopher said, I'm a librarian. Uh, seven years ago, I finished grad school for library science. Uh, I had worked in the library for 13 years by then, which is kind of a long time. I had a liberal arts degree, um, and technically I could do anything, right? I just <laughs> didn't know how to show it. So I saw librarians helping people find stuff. Stuff is code for everything. <laughs> It could be a murder mystery, a doctor, a death notice, get a lot of requests for that, or what's a plant in the spring? Everything. When I finished school, I knew I would do something similar and help people find stuff they were interested in. So what happened next was completely unexpected. I ran into a coworker, Yolande. She heard I finished school. Congrats, I'm working on a project. You should join the team, she said. Tell me more, I said. Her eyes glowed. We've been taking field trips. We're putting together info on spaces like digital media labs, fab labs, self-publishing centers. Talk to your supervisor, see if they can spare you. My supervisor said yes but I don't think either of us really knew what we were saying yes to. <laughs> a year later, a team of us, led by Yolan, was opening a makerspace for a six-month pilot. Yolan got us two days of training, one at the Museum of Science and Industry, and one for electronic textiles, which sounds like super crazy, but is really awesome. The furniture came and we managed to open on time. Thousands of people flowed through the 600 square foot space during a four day library conference. It was bananas. They came to see our 3D printers, laser cutters, and furniture for inspiration. Some understood right away. Some asked, why does the library need this? I thought, does anyone need a book on UFOs? <laughs> I tried different ways to explain how a photo was different than a 3D model, um, or how a 3D printer acted like a hot glue gun, heating up plastic instead of glue. This intersection of art, tech, and experimentation was exciting. It had been exciting in research, and it was way more exciting in practice. I had to figure out why Inkscape only did what I wanted some of the time, or even what I wanted it to do. My mantra was, machines only do what you tell them to do. And usually I told them to do the wrong thing. <laughs> I unplugged 3D printer extruders and burned myself on hot nozzles. Before that, I only used a hex wrench to put together IKEA furniture. <laughs> I ruined hard sheets of acrylic with a laser cutter and cut my hand trying to pop out partially cut material. Acrylic can be surprisingly sharp in case you're wondering. <laughs> Four weeks went by. I was deep into trial and error teaching classes of adults. The process of becoming an adult does things to us. Some of us get nervous. In our classes, we told adults, it's okay to play, more than once. It was a really fun way of helping people find stuff they were interested in. I spent a lot of time in the lab, or running around, and I didn't see Elon unless she stopped by. The next time she did, she said, I have news. What now, I thought. I'm taking a job in the UAE, she said. I'm leaving Chicago, she added, probably because I looked confused when she said UAE. <laughs> what now, I thought. For a minute, the light in my brain went out. But what about, what? I was learning so much. Would the lab still be a thing? Who would run it? The pilot had five more months to go. How would we do it? Wow, 
that's amazing, I said. <laughs> I didn't want to spoil the moment, but the inside of my head was roaring. I'm going to miss you, I blurted. She smiled and said, we'll keep in touch. You can do this. You are so talented. I wanted to believe her, but I didn't see what she saw. I could only see out. What happened next is a bit of a whirl. Like I said, I was learning so much, but whoa, there was so much more to learn. We got sewing machines, which scare me more than the laser cutter. <laughs> We're still learning how to train new staff, since everyone comes in with a different story, and we're just starting to grow, six years later. The torch I got handed was bright and unfiltered. I hope when it's my turn to hand it over, it's got laser focus and it changes colors or something. <laughs> That was awesome. Thank you so much, Sasha. Surprise, now it's me. It's my turn. <laughs> the more charming of the two of us. <laughs> Aren't I a stinker? Okay. I'm not um, <laughs> uh, so uh, you guys are going to see me next for the next two storytellers because I was very fortunate to get to pick them. Uh, two people I love very much. The first one um, is a dear friend of mine, um, a coworker. Uh, I will introduce you to him by introducing you to his Dungeons and Dragons character, um, who is a perpetual pain in my ass. Um, he is a wonderful fighter with an eye patch who constantly gets into trouble, constantly is the bane of my existence, is all, and is also my beloved druid's best friend. Um, and I think it's an indication of the kind of friendship we have in real life as well. Um, so, everyone, please welcome Matt Fields. He knew the mystery of the old man's death wasn't real. It was the idea of it after a wine bottle drained on a train passing through snow that fell on houses standing alone in fields all cut now, and before the corn had grown up above the line right along the horizon. The single tree gnarled out in wide, dark branches caught his eye. He could imagine the storms touching those trees left behind when they cleared the forest out for fields. So the sun fell, but the shade of the last scorched oak didn't. He was going home. It was a strange feeling that way, wasn't it? He wasn't going to visit. He was going home to the park that smelled like rotted fish 15 minutes away by bike, past the water treatment plant where he sat along a ridge as a boy and watched the birds bend their wings down to the water's edge and the tree nursery along the road he always felt was going to be where he died. That was when he was practicing for his driver's license in a bright red Toyota Camry he named Bessie after the blues singer, his feet tapping in a tentative depression on the accelerator. The car lurched backward and forward. Dad was white-knuckled, but damned if he didn't say good job, son, as he pulled his back in and gripped a seat belt. A little slower on the brake, just a touch or you'll give me whiplash, he said, riding himself again in the seat, his arms taut and his voice slowing his heartbeat. They pulled into winding, circling roads, the first sign of suburban growth like mycorrhizae tendrils spreading along old bread. He could see the disgust in his father's face at the growth, maybe fear. It still seemed strange to him that they both moved to cities, these two men choosing to be isolated and never alone. He imagined his father sitting at the window, on the 26th floor of the Power and Light building in Kansas City, looking down at the river town, grown up from Lester Young, playing out that soft, unearthly saxophone like the notes would build things all on their own and coal the ground out from underneath him into waves of loam. The old man had died between the dining and observation car. They kept it quiet, but there he was, that old man in front of him, moving slow, excruciating, step by step until one slipped. It was almost inevitable between the cars where the floor misaligned and you only had the thinnest candy cane bar between you and the floor. He slid his hand along the bar, his foot twisted on the edge of the steel floor where maybe it does bend, only slightly with a mind of its own to trip him. His face went into the glass door in front of him. His hand slammed the big red button that said open, face still smashed, strings of bright blood trailing down from his nose on the grimy pane of glass, the red thread just touching the no exit sign pressed onto the bottom as the door opened. 
The conductor came through with an official air and pushed his way through the crowd. He bent over the old man, not realizing he was seeing a bent and broken thing until he saw his hands slightly curled over the carpet. They were white. He imagined they were cold like those police procedural shows made the bodies out to be on underlit metal slabs, but he was wrong. They were still warm. The door between train cars kept closing on the old man. The hydraulic whoosh stopped short back and forth like a pendulum, strung up over long straight lines through cut fields and bare trees and rows ready already for spring. He threw up all over his uniform. It started as a lump in his throat, then panic, and he couldn't get the lump to move. It sat there willing out a breathless, gagging desperation. This happened to the conductor all the time when he was off the train. The constant bouncing movement kept the panic back usually, but this was a dead man, and the conductor had never seen a dead man except for the time he spied an old lady through the doors between train cars. Her face was planted in her salad bowl in the dining car, but he was new then, and the conductor at the time told him to go to the other cars and explain there was going to be a delay. He ran off with a concerted grace as far as from, from that old woman and her salad as he could get. This was different. The body was in front of him, and he saw blood streaming from his nose onto the carpet, that pale, white, dead old man streaming the last bit of life out onto the blue carpet. He brought his hands up to his mouth when he felt another wave of nausea coming on. He stumbled back and sat down on the floor as the train rattled through the cold, empty field. There are a lot of opinions about who we ought to be. The old man across from the man in the dining car could attest to that. He thought we all to be white males reading war like it was a playboy, bloody centerfold curled up in his back pocket. The Oklahoma man was there on 9-11. He was just a few blocks away and went to the mayor of the city after and said, I want to do something better. This was Giuliani at the time, so it turns out that was Homeland Security detail. <laughs> the Oklahoma man told him this with hesitation. He was maybe used to the disdain he got from people when he said this, but Kansas nice is hard to break, and he just said, oh, really, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know who should run, the old man asked, Sean Hannity. Oh, he'd be great. The new gospel from the entertainer playing blithely on everyone's fears, like his grandmother at a white piano plucking out the first notes pressed on a booklet of music in front of her. That was the first memory he had of someone playing music, sad that it was tied to that dining car and the old man. She and his grandfather lived off the main road out to the plaza in Kansas City, turned right off the parkway into trees and retirees, hanging up squirrel traps along their bird feeders and planting hostas in a line along their driveway. He was too quiet to be well-loved by his grandfather, a veteran of World War II who said of his tattoos one Christmas, I've seen a lot of dumb things in my life, but that might be the dumbest. <laughs> but his grandmother was never without a kind word and an obsession with carrots at dinner, never a dinner without carrots. <laughs> she said it helped with vision to a boy in big Coke bottle glasses. His time with her at the piano were his favorites. Even then, it was mystery how the bands of oscillating sound crept up around his ears. They both sat there on the white bench in front of the white piano. He must have been eight or nine. She explained each key she pressed tentatively so the sound came out muted and soft. He tried the note she pressed, and the same muted chime clarioned out like it came over a horizon hidden under the mallets and strings. He started to move more fingers over the keys, faster now, practiced hand like a machine, pressing out plastic molds. Her eyes were hard and mouth pursed with concentration. He looked at her and imagined her outside a tiny house with white linen shifting in the wind like smooth clouds and saw her cup her grandfather's face in her hand as he straightened out his uniform. There was his brother then, thin as a board. That round circle face, now gaunt and golden from basic training. Let's go for a run, he said during a short stint between basic and deployment. This was years ago. The man was smoking by that time, and it took them until the exit out of the neighborhood past the hill where the boy died when he rolled over his four-wheeler for him to lose sight of his brother around a bend. He could hear him yelling back to keep up, so he kept up as best he could past the bend where the small dot on the sidewalk must have been his brother, that small, unrecognizable dot. They stopped the train at the next station, and police were called in. He was interrogated since another passenger had seen him behind the old man. The officer asked if he knew him before the train, if he had unwanted thoughts, whether he could read the officer's mind. If so, what was he saying? That he was guilty of thinking the old man's life away, which was true. He could read the officer's mind, and he was thinking about the call he had earlier that day. A family was visiting their mother's grave after Thanksgiving when two turkeys emerged from the gravestones. They charged the blue Dodge Charger, pecking at the paint mm -hmm. until someone called in saying, I promise this is real weird being attacked by turkeys. <laughs> the officer got to open his baton with a flick of the wrist, telling the family, I wish it was this easy when I was hunting. 
He kept quiet, ignored the strange questions that had little to do with the old man who turned out to have led a dishonorable life by all accounts. His daughter barely spoke to him. His wife had divorced him after the election. And the old man took it out on the squirrels and hostas in his front yard, putting up shotguns tied to bits of wood attached to the bird feeders. They went off constantly and mostly hit birds instead of squirrels. The yard was covered in blue feathers. The neighbors were terrified of him, so he started calling his daughter, trying to revive a broken relationship out of loneliness. At first, she didn't answer, deleted the voicemails, told her therapist her father was calling her, trying after all this time to fix things. The therapist asked if that was what she wanted. She said, that's what I think I'm supposed to want. She started to listen to the messages. He sounded different than what she remembered, softer, definitely older. He apologized for the way he was, the way he treated her when she was younger. She picked up the phone one morning after months of this, and he told her he loved her, though he wasn't sure that was true, but he knew it was what he was supposed to say. She invited him, after a few of these conversations, to stay with her over the Thanksgiving holiday, so he booked a train and told her he would see her in about seven hours. Now the old man is face down between two train cars passing from state to state. The officer released the man after a few hours of interrogation when he did not budge and did not tell them about the thought he had, that slight pressure in the middle of the old man's back that would have left him dead on the ground, pendulum door swinging against his body. He instead rented a car out of the station and drove the rest of the way home. Still, it was home, and there was his brother, round golden face, and there in the fields were those who passed. love my friend so heckin' much. Okay, um, thank you, Matt, that was fantastic. Um, the next speaker is a dear friend of mine, um, I think the person in this room I have known the longest. Um, and there are literally not enough words in the English language for me to say all of the nice things this person deserves. Um, they, yeah, I, yeah, deal with it. Um, he's humble to a fault. Um, but brilliant, and also enabled me to write a paper on the Christology of the musical The Book of Mormon in college, so that was pretty cool. Uh, please, everyone, welcome Chris Robinson. It's so weird when things like that are true. So. As Shelby said, my name is Chris Robinson. So think about that for a moment. My name is Christopher Robinson. From the womb, I was destined to be a nerd. There was just no way around it. And I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Texas, about a mile down the road from Sheldon Cooper. At least that's what he says. So uh, near Galveston is where I'm from. And just following the script, wasn't good at sports. I had a jock brother. My mom was a cop. Uh, my dad was a manager of a store. Nerddom. That was my role. And I learned that pretty early. I learned to read early. And I began to escape, if you want to use that word, into stories, into books. And my mom, who was brilliant, got us a subscription of best in children's books. And so we would read those and spend a lot of time with that. I'm about 10 times older than most people in this room. And so also Leave it to Beaver, Brady Bunch, all of the wonders of Irwin Allen sci-fi uh, things. I just immersed myself in alternate universes, in other worlds. And I learned how to defend myself and I remember this was a turning point in my life. I remember learning that I could, with my brain, and not like make people's heads explode, but I could be mean. I could be cruel. So one day, Lisa Corville, who I detested, she was a horrible <laughs> human being, we had read in class Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, and yes, every year of my life, I get a Pooh Bear for some reason. So here I am, Christopher Robinson. Lisa Corville comes up and she goes, hey, Christopher Robin, where's Winnie the Pooh? And meanness bubbles up to the surface. I said, wow, Lisa, I don't know, piglet. 
and she started crying, and I'll never forget that. So I remember her name, I remember her expression, but this could be my weapon, I could be mean. But then I would be like all of those characters in books that made other people's lives miserable. I could be the Dark Lord, I could be the Red Queen, I could be all kinds of things, but I didn't want to be cruel. Then another shift happened. In my class, one year, we read Harriet the Spy. I love Harriet the Spy, I just love it. Movie, no, but book, yes. <laughs> I was about 11 years old. I went out and I bought a spiral notebook they had the ecology symbol on it, remember those? <laughs> and I started writing down everything I saw. And mostly about people, because that's what Harriet wrote about. Now she snuck into their homes, that was a little too stalkerish for me. But, <laughs> but I would write down what they looked like and what it seemed they were feeling, who they seemed to like or not like. I would go to the library, I would go to the store, I would go to the park, and I would just write. When I was 11, and I have kept a journal every day since then. I just have stacks of these things. And on the front cover it says, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, if uh, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wait, God damn it, throw these journals in the lake. <laughs> because I don't screen. I learned through puberty and growing up through all of the stories that I had fallen into, all of the world building that I had been exposed to, I don't, I just don't uh, filter it. I write down everything. So now, just go much further, I teach at DePaul University, which is where I met Shelby, and, well, <laughs> story's there, and, uh, <laughs> and I teach courses in culture, cultural theory, cultural analysis. I have a background in postmodern philosophy, existentialism. I went through that whole black phase. Uh, <laughs> but one of my favorite courses of all is to deconstruct human and cultural religion. And I have a class that I teach at DePaul called Religion and Popular Culture, where we basically study the ways our pop culture our movies, our films, our music, our stories are replacing religion. Religion, in a sense, is a torch that's kind of burning out, yet people still have big questions about love and about good or about truth. So I teach these courses where we take examples from pop culture and I show how there are cultural religious themes. Now there's always that student usually a PE major, okay, who <laughs> raises his little paw and he says, well, I just can't believe that if there was a loving God, there would be blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll say, that's fair, that's a good question. Did you ever read Harry Potter? And he goes, yeah, I love Harry Potter, I've read them all. I'm like, did you cry when Dobby died? And he gets a sad face, he goes, yeah, I did. It's not real, it's a story. And then a voice in the back of the room goes, Dobby dies? <laughs> <laughs> but what I love to talk with these people about is, stop looking for facts, and I'm not a Trump person, I don't mean it like that. But, <laughs> but don't get hung up on whether it's factual, is it true? Does it say something true about what it means to be a person, what it means to be alive, what it means to hurt, what it means to heal, what it means to take a next step, what it means to be stuck? Are these things real? And that's where we find meaning, and that's where we begin to find each other. Now, I could have been a really angry, bro well, I am angry and broken for a lot of reasons, but I could have been a mean, angry, broken person. But I began to write stories about people and I began to write down what I saw. And I began to listen and I pushed back against people who like little tiny worlds that are really, really contained and say, no, our worlds are vast and huge. I feel very, very excited about what I do, obviously. And so in a way, I kind of carry a torch. I carry this torch of wanting to, to be a light in the darkness, wanting to be kind of a light 
to a lot of ignorant people. This is my hope. So tonight, when I heard that the theme was passing the torch, part of me resisted for two reasons. One, passing the torch is sort of an athletic term, you know, like the Olympics. And I'm kind of allergic to those still. Uh, but then the other side of it is, no, I, I want to hold on to this light. I want to hold on to the torch. But I love the idea of taking that light and extending it to somebody else's torch and lighting it. Then the, then the world's twice as bright, and then three times as bright. So I know, that's kind of Hallmark Christmas movie, sort of. <laughs> there's no cookies and there's no bad dancing, but it is kind of the Hallmark. <laughs> oh, there are cookies, and they're, <laughs> and they're very good cookies. <laughs> but that image, again, of passing the torch always made me sad, because it's like, well, one light goes out and another begins. When in fact, from what I've experienced, there's a lot of light because we're all lighting each other's torches and stories. So thank you very much. It's full of smiles and rainbows, you guys. Okay, um, for the last bit of the night, we're coming up here together um, to introduce one of the greatest human beings on this damn planet. Um, and uh, we both wanted to say a little something. Chris got to say something already, so I wanted to go quickly and just say, um, like I said, I have been coming to your stories for a very, very long time. Um, and I mentioned my anxiety coming to your stories, um, which is very real, even today. Um, but I always knew that I had a solid rock, a solid light of sunshine that I could rely on to make me feel comfortable, make me feel wanted, um, and to feel safe. And that was always Eric, 100% of the time. Um, and I am so thankful that I'm not expected to roast him up here because it would go very poorly. <laughs> I'm very bad at this. Um, instead, my abject sincerity uh, is what I will bring to say that seriously, you have, you have changed, fuck it, my life for the better. You truly have, and it is, my life is richer for knowing you. Um, and I'm incredibly happy to um, steal the show away from you <laughs> and attempt to live up to what you have built. We are, uh, y'all, I'm so emotional I had to switch to light beer. <laughs> it, 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 it really is something that comes from deep down in here when I say that so many good things in my life happen because of this man and he's one of my favorite people in the entire world. Thank God we have two people to replace him because you need that much heart, and that's saying a lot, because one of these people is Shelby Mongan. The, uh, the, the, Thanks, guys. The man... My heart, the legend, Eric Garneau! first time in seven years I've been afraid to tell a story, so I think that that makes it the right call. Please pardon me while I pull it up on my phone. That was lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, how's everybody doing tonight? Chicago! I got all my... You guys are going to have to watch some KISS live videos. That's where I get all my stage banter from. <laughs> this song is about a city that knows how to rock like no other city. All right. All right. Seven years. Seven years is a long time to do anything. Uh, science says that your body cells can completely refresh in seven years, making you in some respects a literal new person in that time span. Uh, seven years is as long as a good Star Trek show has lasted on TV. <laughs> 
I I can't imagine uh, that Discovery will go that long. After seven years, it's awful. After seven years of celebrating vulnerability and earnestness, I think the best tribute I can give to the show is to embrace the emotional core of why it exists. And as my friend Lily, who you met earlier, likes to say, the most important thing for any storyteller, and I hope you tell your people this, is to what, Lily? Own their shit, right? So here's my shit. Um, the truth is that your stories exist because I'm a lonely person. Not a loner. Uh, loners are cool, like Wolverine, the guy with the claws that, uh, you know, like Wolverine, he's cool. <laughs> no, um, lonely. The difference is that loners are folks who have other people around and decide that they don't need them. Lonely people are the opposite. They don't have people around and need them desperately. And the thing is that loneliness is not a cool thing. There's no cultural cachet to it. Nothing hip about saying you're lonely. Uh, it's weird, isn't it, that we judge people most harshly for trying to make up for what they lack. That's another topic, though. Uh, but anyway, that uh, is the camp that I find myself in. So you may have heard me talk about how I don't have any family, like at all, or maybe you haven't and that's news to you. Literal zero. Um, I'm almost always single. I can count the number of shows uh, I did where that wasn't true on both my hands. Uh, this whole podcast started because I was trying to get over a broken heart, and the thing that got me through feeling like shit was listening to comedy podcasts like Doug Loves Movies and Comedy Bang Bang. So I decided I wanted to record one of my own, and wouldn't you know it, Kevin had this show for me. Um, you can listen to my story about that on the second episode of the podcast, which posted, uh, I, I dug it up and posted it in the archives this week, and uh, the, like I said, literal seven years ago today it came out. Uh, the kicker there, of course, is that uh, the woman who hurt me in that scenario was not even someone that I was dating. It was someone I wanted to date who didn't reciprocate. So that old nerd story. Um, <laughs> but there's a very real way in which loneliness is the creator of this podcast. And that's not surprising, really. I think that loneliness is the driving force for a ton of creative endeavors. But usually, if it's brought up at all, people are very coy and self-deprecating about it. How many comedians make tweets where that's the punchline? Oh, I'm so lonely. This isn't a punchline. This is bald emotion. I'm telling you straight up. Um, now, you all know how I feel about my guy, Bruce Springsteen. And I think he has the right idea uh, here with what I'm about to say. I was lucky enough to get to see Springsteen on Broadway on my birthday this year. Something, by the way, you'll all be able to do on Netflix starting tomorrow, or possibly possibly tonight when you get home, uh, depending on when they post it. I'm going to do that with some of you in the audience tomorrow at my apartment. Um, and he has a line in the show that I haven't been able to stop thinking about. This isn't exact because I obviously haven't rewatched it yet, but paraphrase, he says, you spend your whole life emulating the love you don't receive. So let's talk about a day when I was 17 years old, at a time where I had begun to mend a relationship with my father, who divorced my mom years prior, and who I hadn't had much communication with. Uh, after my mom passed away, we had started to talk more and spend more time together, and there was con uh, talk of me moving back in with him and his new family before I went to college, so I could use his house as a kind of home base and really integrate into his family. I even went and spent Thanksgiving with my dad and his crew my senior year of high school to feel that situation out. Uh, I even started to get excited about the idea of being part of a more traditional family. But a few weeks after that Thanksgiving trip, uh, after a few days of him being dodgy and not wanting to talk, uh, in the parking lot of a Toys R Us, because of course it was, in the middle of winter, I had a phone call with my dad where I uh, insisted that he tell me what was wrong and why he didn't want to talk to me. And he said the following sentence to me, which I will never forget as long as I live. During your stay here, we, we meaning his new family, we found you to be self-centered and arrogant, and we don't believe you're ready to be a part of this or any other family at this time. The or any other family part is the part that really gets me, as though I was auditioning for a bunch of families at the time, and he called all of them to have me blacklisted. Um, so maybe some people in the audience know what that's like in other contexts. Um, but I love you. Um, that day is definitely one of the most impactful in my life. It's hard to escape the gravity of your dad telling you there's nowhere where you belong. Uh, it's something that, honestly, I probably should have gone to therapy for, at least when I was 17. But, you know, I have a comedy podcast, so who needs therapy? Um, but seriously, please seek out help if you feel you need it. It's a great resource. Okay. So, anyway. You spend your whole life emulating the love you don't receive. Even at 17, I knew that that piece of shit who was my dad was essentially giving me two choices. To believe him or to defy him. I picked defiance. And since then, I've tried really, really hard to not be the person he said I was. I know I failed at points, but I think I've succeeded pretty well at others. And I think this podcast is stone fucking proof of that. 
I haven't talked to my father since then, but uh, if the next gentleman I like to talk about will forgive me for saying this, I feel like maybe I found a bit of a surrogate dad in a one Gary Lucy, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, that name might be familiar to fans in the audience. Gary is the writer and producer of podcasts like The Ketchup and Let's Get It On that have found their home on nerdalogs.com. He's also an Emmy Award winning writer and music nerd and someone who inspires the shit out of me. Uh, not so coincidentally, I was able to meet him in person because of this podcast when it went out to L.A. in 2015. That year, uh, as is my tradition, I wrote him a very uh, emotive email on New Year's Day. I call that uh, Awkwardly Sentimental Email Day. Maybe some of you guys out there have gotten those. Um, it's a good time for reflection. Telling him how much his friendship meant to me both as a fellow creative but also as I came to learn uh, as another person whose dad turned his back. I confided to him in part that my family history made me wonder if I was even capable of forming any kind of long-term bonds with people, and it heartened me to see somebody like him who grew up uh, to have a wonderful family and loving relationships and still creating stuff that's cool as fuck. Um, Gary wrote me back a couple hours later, uh, and it was the most prized email I've ever gotten. I look at it every so often when I'm down, and I'm going to share some of it with you now. Gary said... I can't tell you how much I appreciate being thought of as an example in that way. It's probably the main underlying reason I've ever tried to do anything so I could become a beacon of hope. Being shunned by our fathers in the way that we were is, very profound, is a very profound form of rejection. Intellectually, we know it says more about them than us. But emotionally, it's a nonstop open wound, a constant smoke alarm, low battery warning in our heads that doesn't go beep. It goes, what's wrong with me? Believe this. You are eminently lovable, not because you're such a great guy, which you are, uh, he said it, not me, uh, but, but because it is the minimum baseline everyone deserves. But it's the considerable warmth and positive vibes you put out into the world that will make you a love millionaire someday soon. So be open to it, seek it out, don't perpetuate your dad's lie that it's only for other people. You owe it to yourself, you owe it to the world, and you owe it to the next generation of pudgy beardos with troublemaking eye contact. <laughs> All that stuff about finding the love your dad says you don't deserve, that kind of sounds like uh, what Springsteen says, uh, didn't it? Also that phrase, love millionaire, which he capitalized in particular, that has stuck with me. And here's the thing, in the three years since Gary wrote that, I haven't found some kind of lifelong romantic love. Uh, but I think it's foolish to think that romance is the only kind of love that's valuable. I think lots of types of relationships can be as powerful, maybe not as intense as romance, but we're at least in the same ballpark. Uh, and I think this show has made me a love millionaire. When I look at where I am now compared to the sad sack of a dude I was seven years ago, literally being sad over someone who didn't want to date me, Jesus fucking Christ. Uh, it's, it's a big change. Obviously, I'm still dealing with loneliness and rejection. Who doesn't? Uh, but I also have this incredible network of people that I've developed really rich relationships with, and a lot of it is because of this show. Half of you in this room I probably only know because of your stories, and the other half I'm sure I know better. That's incredible. I can look out in the crowd and see dozens of people. I wrote this before I knew, so I'm glad that's true. Uh, <laughs> see dozens of people that I care about because of a stupid podcast that started out as a chance to talk about Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers and shit like that. That's fucking awesome. And like many relationships, I think now this one has run its course. Uh, other projects and life concerns have taken me away from this show, and uh, this show that for many years was the most important thing in my life, and I say that with all sincerity, and I don't feel like I can do it justice anymore. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I think lots of relationships have an expiration date, and uh, for me and this show, here we are. But I will always love it, and more importantly, I'll always cherish the relationships I have with wonderful people like you, whose vulnerability and passion and thoughtfulness and nerdiness have joined together to put a whole lot of goddamn love into my life and each other's. You have really made me a love millionaire. And when I step off this stage and turn things over to Chris and Shelby, again, reminding you, two people who literally fell in love and are getting married because they met on this fucking show. That doesn't change. I hope you follow our new friends on whatever journey they take the show on. I know I will. And I look forward to knowing you all for many, many years to come. It sure makes the loneliness a lot easier to deal with. Uh, I love you all. And now I'm going to end this the only way I can. By going back to... Bruce. Katie likes to say that uh, Jack White is her religion. And... I, 
I get it, man. Like, I'm a secular humanist and want going to church is fucking going to Springsteen. Here we go. I get up in the evening And I ain't got nothing to say I come home in the morning I go to bed feeling the same way I ain't nothing but tired I'm just tired and bored with myself Hey there baby I could use just a little help You can't start a fire can't start a fire without a spark This gun's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark I look in the mirror, no matter what Gifford says Gotta change my clothes, not my hair, my face Man, I ain't going nowhere Just living in a dump like this There's something happening somewhere Baby, I just know there is You can't start a fire You can't start a fire without a spark This gun's for hire It's gonna make me cry. Um, thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. We really appreciate all of you being here. Um, it is a joy to see all of your faces, to share stories, to share cookies, to share time with you. Um, fuck, this year's almost over. Um, so, wait and see. Uh, we are trying to figure out what this is going to look like in the future. Uh, it is going to change uh, a little bit. 
it's going to be just us old folks up here on stage <laughs> trying to figure it out for the first time, and we want to see you come back, and we want to see new people, and we want to engender what it felt like for me the first time I came up and what it felt like for Shelby yep. the first time she came up and what it felt like for some of our new speakers the first time that they came up. That, that nausea and that nervousness and that vulnerability and that really awful space that you're in when you walk on stage for the first time, it's a gorgeous thing. And, and, and we want more people to get to put themselves out there in a way that that people will react to and, and be kind about. So keep an eye out on things uh, for us, but that planning is a problem for future Shelby and future Chris. For now, it's the holidays, there's still more cookies, and we love you very much. Have a great night! Yay! This podcast has been produced in association with the Nerdalogs. To find out more about the Nerdalogs and their shows, visit www.nerdalogs.com or facebook.com slash nerdalogs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>